and welcome to Everybody's National Parks, an audio travel guide aimed to inspire you and your family to visit America's National Parks and help you get the most out of your park experience. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode number 15.5, the fifth episode in our series on Saguaro National Park near Tucson, Arizona. In this episode, I speak with Tina Andrew, ancestral ranger at Saguaro National Park. Tina talks about Native American culture and how it relates to Saguaro historically and how the park plays a role in preserving traditions today and in the future. We also want to hear about your adventures. Do you have a story to tell about your family's experience at a national park? A favorite recommendation to share or how this podcast helped enrich your trip? Email us at hello at everybody'snps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybody'snps.com. Before I get to today's topic, I want to take a moment to talk about listener support. If you are already a patron of the podcast, thank you so much and feel free to skip ahead one minute to today's conversation. If you are not yet a patron and you want to hear my thoughts on this topic, here they are. This podcast is a labor of love. We were looking for a podcast that would help us in planning our family trips to national parks. We could not find one and so we decided to create the podcast we were looking for. I ask you this question, has this podcast brought you value? If so, would you consider becoming a patron by offering financial support? Patreon is a platform that allows for recurring monthly support for as low as a dollar per month. You may find a link on our website, everybody'snationalparks.com, to support the show. Thank you to all of our patrons. Now let's get to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. This is your host, Danielle. I'm here with Tina Andrew, Ancestral Ranger at Saguaro National Park. Tina also has her own podcast called Cultivating Indigenous Voices, and I will have a link to that in the show notes. Hi, Tina. Welcome. Thank you for joining me. Hi. Thank you for having me, Danielle. So you were on the west side at Saguaro National Park and offline we were talking about how beautiful, hot, but beautiful the flowers are right now, right? Yes, everything is blooming fabulously out here. It's it's amazing. The milky white flowers on the saguaros are out. So that just tells us that we're getting closer to the fruit season of the saguaros. Which will be Verdes. Yeah, and we'll be talking about that later on in our conversation. Yes, yes, for sure. <laughs> Before we jump into the real conversation, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do at the park and how long you've been at the park? Sure. So, as you mentioned, Danielle, my name is uh, Tina Andrew. And I'm from Southern Arizona. I am a member of the Thon Autumn Nation, which is a local tribe here in Southern Arizona. And it's usually about 45 minutes away from Tucson. I've been working for the park for about five and a half years now, doing environmental education programs, but also doing some outreach into uh, local Native communities, kind of creating a space for Indigenous peoples to come out and recreate, but also 
enjoy their local national parks as well. Nice. And what is that like to be a park ranger representing the park, but also the Toona Odom people? Did I say it right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's been very rewarding. And I really have enjoyed my job even more because I get to work with my own people. You know, I'm visiting schools that I went to school at. I'm, you know, just to go back to those places you grew up in as a young kid and bring a whole new opportunity for these students to engage them in some citizen science has been pretty awesome. Since college, I've always recognize that Native people are underrepresented in the STEM field. And so I've always kind of had a passion to bring STEM in tribal youth programs, schools, classrooms, get them engaged and, and get them to see the fun side of science, that they could actually make a career out of something like this, what they're doing, and that they are engaging in some real science by collecting data that the park is going to be using, but also introducing them to their or ancestral lands, which are pretty much the within the park boundaries when we talk about the prehistoric people who are the Hohokam. And it is believed that, and I always heard it as a child growing up, that the Thon Autumn are descendants of the Hohokam, that they are our ancestors. So they get to also come to a space a place where their own answers dwelled and lived and thrived. So also kind of teaching tribal youth that learning about their own history is very, very important and that they need to recognize those historical facts, historical moments, because it's a part of who they are and they need to embrace that wholeheartedly and also to respect their own culture and history and where they come from as well. That's great. Do you have any stories or anecdotes to share? Does it resonate with them? Is there anything that you've heard the kids say that makes you laugh or knows that they're getting it and how meaningful it is? Is there anything that you can share from your experience working with the kids and teaching them about their ancestors? Yeah, I think that one of the biggest things is when they come to an area where we do have the petroglyphs and we talk about the petroglyphs, I think it really hits them at that point that they're in these same spaces where their ancestors were at and that the the lifestyle that our ancestors lived is still visible in our lives today. And I think they realize that how huge it is that they are still who they are as Native people, as Indigenous people, to the land, caring for the land and all that good stuff, but also recognizing that it takes a lot to balance the two out when you're coming from an Indigenous community versus Western society kind of thing. But I think that when they come to spaces that show evidence of their ancestry, a lot of times they're just in awe or they they want to ask more questions at that point. They want to learn a little bit more. And I think they do kind of grow a sense of, of pride almost, feeling happy, feeling proud, but also mm-hmm. feeling, feeling thankful that these areas are protected and are preserved, not only for their generation, but they're the ones after them right. and before them. So everyone gets to enjoy those spaces. Yeah. And for visitors like myself, I have that 
feeling too, standing there and knowing that someone drew that on those rocks 12,000 years ago was maybe standing in that same exact spot Mm -hmm. and made that that art Mm -hmm. (laughs) is really, really cool to think about (laughs) that people have been coming Mm -hmm. here for that long. (laughs) So because so many of the parks, you know, have this history and have these roots, but I haven't come across another park that is really integrating it like Saguaro and really partnering with the community Mm -hmm. and making sure that they uh, understand each other and that these things can be preserved and lived on. Uh, Do you know of other parks that are doing this? I know other parks are working to do it because, you know, I've, we've been engaged in, you know, working in Indian country training, you know, within the National Park Service. So you meet other parks that are wanting to to establish a relationship. You meet other parts who are who are doing it. Of course, Navajo Nation, what is it? Um, Canyon de Chez, because it's on their tribal lands. Of course, they're more uh, in tune and they're more Navajo hiring. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They control, they have more control there. And then other parts like the Grand Canyon. Oh, but right. I think parks like the Grand Canyon, they have their challenges because some parks work with 12 tribes, you know, which Mm -hmm. definitely complicate things, I'm sure. Yeah. It takes a lot to kind of sustain a a mutual two-way working relationship with a tribe. Right. And it takes a lot of patience, you know, (laughs) and that's been a big part of my job here as Ancestor Ranger is building a sustainable relationship between the park and local tribal communities. Right. And that's what I've been able to to help do. And I, I feel like it's it's where it needs to be, where it's just kind of normal to happen that way. Mm-hmm. You know, tribal, they're inviting us into the community now. You know, come to a career day, come to an academic showcase, come participate in Earth Day, you know. So we're getting those invitations now. Before it was us going to them, and now they're recognizing and they're seeing us in the community. They see that the park does care. They're showing our support. At one point, we even had five tribal interns here in the park. Mm-hmm. So it's just been really great and successful. A lot of challenges, of course. Biggest ones are transportation. Mm-hmm. Biggest ones are, you know, working with different organizations or youth groups or schools that may abruptly just change, you know. Right. And then also understanding the challenges within the tribal community. So being aware of what's happening in the community and not so much being stuck with just looking at like another audience, you know, it has to be more than that. Yeah. You know, I'm actually moving, moving on from the park. I'll be going into a, a different position oh. under the U of A. Oh, okay. The park has really, you know, we just got out of a community engagement training last week and everyone talked about, oh, Tina, she's leaving, but we need to, what do we, what can we do better and this and that. So everybody has really been coming to me and asking, what can we do better? What what and, and you know so I've been kind of guiding, help con- consultate and guide other park staff who are who understand and see these opportunities and you know these types of relationships, the importance of it. So I see the willingness that even after I'm gone, it's it's not going to be completely lost. There has been. Do you have a replacement? We're working on that. Yeah, okay. we we're working on that now. I have faith. <laughs> Great. It seems to be going really good, and other staff are kind of taking on that lead to be the next point of communication when it comes to engaging in the community. So let's get into what is the significance of the saguaro cactus 
and the desert for the ancestors and and now for the Tona Odam. I think the significance to today's people is that, you know, traditionally it's believed that the Saworo was once a human being, which then eventually the human being became a Saworo and that was the first Saworo. And through time, we've learned to look at the Saworo um, as a human, therefore respecting it even more, um, but also understanding the importance that it provides medicine, but it also provides nutrition for the Native people. And uh, in our culture, the Saworo fruit harvest season, which is Usually the very hottest times of the year, June and July, when folks usually go out and harvest the fruit. And today it's it's made to make some syrup or some jam out of the fruit. But an old ceremony with the fruit was they would ferment the fruit and make it into a wine. And they would use it in the wine ceremony. And it was believed that these ceremonies were calling the rains, which were very vital back in those days, to watering their crops. So they relied on the fruit, they relied on that ceremony, and they relied on those rains to come after the ceremonies. And that's really pretty much how it was and is still believed today. Um, Not so much uh, ceremonies happening as much as back then. Today, it's coming back. For a while, it was kind of not as big as it was. And also, another big part of the Saguaro fruit harvest is it actually is the celebration of the autumn new year. So that's our new year, which is celebrated during the summer months. There's no specific date. It's just literally the season. Oh, I uh, see. The start of the autumn new year. Yeah, because it's also a time of replenishment, not only for the people, but for the land when the rain comes and, you know, gives all this water and moisture that's so much needed it's replenishment to the land, the animals, the plants, the people. And so that's why it's considered a new year for us. Nice. So I spoke to your colleague, Cam Juarez, and he mentioned that you have this celebration of the fruit harvest and you invite visitors, park visitors, to mm-hmm. join and attend. Yeah, there is a, a fruit harvest camp within the park boundaries. Another historical fact is that in the early 1930s, they established the East Park District, um, and it wasn't until the early 60s that they actually established the West District here at Saguaro. They didn't know that this was a, a popular area where autumn always came every summer to harvest, and it wasn't until the first year of establishment that they recognized all these autumn coming onto the park to harvest. And they really didn't know what to do about it back then. They were just so caught off guard. But they had allowed it the first year. Uh, but eventually they were kind of thinking, okay, well, you know, our job here is to protect and to preserve. And people are normally not allowed to do anything to plants, things like that. But eventually through time and with the support of the local community, Tucson and Morena and, and local indigenous communities, that support really helped uh, in establishing a special permit uh, between an agreement between the park and the local tribal council to have this agreement. And last year, we actually, the park actually did an environmental assessment on the impacts of the saguaro fruit harvest and found no significant impacts. So it's now continued to go on 
where this space is used every summer by a family who has been here long before the park has been here, still in that same space, collecting, harvesting, processing the fruit, and doing demonstrations, and not only for the indigenous communities, but for non-natives as well. And a lot of reporters come out and people just love the story because it's the, they're so open and welcoming to anybody, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background is, anybody is welcome to that space as long as they're willing to respect it and, and learn it uh, with best intentions. That's great because it, it could have gone in a different direction. That wouldn't have been so nice. Mm -hmm. That's great to hear. Is this an event that the park advertises and promotes or it's just kind of a word of mouth thing? It, it definitely is a, a word of mouth thing. I think that's the best way to do it because, again, we don't want to overcrowd the area and, and damage or have any significant impact to this one designated area. Right. And so it's it's been pretty successful just through word of mouth. People are still really able to appreciate it in this one area. That would definitely be a concern if it was because people love it. And pe we know people love it so much that if it was advertised publicly, it probably creates some overcrowding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As <laughs> seeing pictures of... Uh other parks that are getting very crowded, you know. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but some something like that, you know, if a visitor happens to be there when it's happening and they let them know that in the visitor center, that's great and lucky for them. But yeah, if it's on the calendar mm -hmm. and tons of people are making the trip just for that, that's when you run into problems. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Are there any other different types of celebration or rituals like that? Or is that the only one where it's like in partnership with the park? This is pretty much the, the only one. Okay. Other than that, autumn usually don't come to the park to harvest except for the summertime once that permit is signed and agreed upon. And it is only Native people who can come out and, and harvest, no questions asked. Mm -hmm. And usually any non-natives that would come usually would have a connection with the tribal member or even the person that facilitates and demonstrates that is the head of the camp there. So it's just a matter of uh, who you know, I guess. Got it. Okay. Are there any stories, legends, beliefs that you can share that relate to whether it's the ancestors or contemporary people with relation to the desert or also the saguaro in particular. Yeah, I didn't mention this when I introduced uh, my tribal background, but Thawne Autumn actually uh, means desert people. And it's just realizing that for since time immemorial, we've occupied this place, which most people were probably considered unlivable. <laughs> And how we've utilized the land, you know, as our grocery store, as our pharmacy, as our entertainment, as our art gallery. So it's just definitely been a part of who we are for a very, very long time. And that these spaces have always signified who we are as Indigenous people and how our own history is now recognized and gets shared with so many other people from all over the world. And they're so amazed by it. And they're so appreciative and respectful of it. And I've seen it myself because I did some 
work in the visitor center, having face-to-face with visitors there. And it also, even as an Indigenous person myself, it gives me an opportunity to share more in-depth perspective of the Indigenous peoples in the background and all that good stuff. I mean, of course, there are many legends. There are different ceremonies. They don't take place here in the park, except for the fruit harvesting, but that some have been lost, unfortunately. And it's a matter of reaching the younger people and having them recognize what certain things need to be carried on and should be carried on. And some of those things are coming back. So it's like reintroduction of even for us of our own ceremonies and our own traditional harvesting practices and things like that. And I think the park has helped play a huge role in carrying on tradition. You know what I mean? Yes, definitely. So, yeah, yeah. So I think it's it's been great. My time here and and what, what we've been able to do, not just with the, the fruit harvesting and all that good stuff, but also partnering with tribal schools, bringing them out here on field trips, you know, just the the same opportunity that other schools, districts get and, you know, kind of introducing them to there's internship opportunities, there's career opportunities, you know, a a career that has not been advertised within the tribal community. So it's been pretty interesting. Can you talk a little bit about how they would use the land The you mentioned that the desert was the grocery store for food, the pharmacy, entertainment. Can you go into that a little bit more with some examples? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, the foods, there's various cacti out here that are edible. There's the choya buds that are actually, folks are harvesting right now. Choya buds and the saguaro fruit, of course. What is it? Other fruits. The Oh my goodness. I'm having a... I'm looking right at it now, too, and I can't think of the name. Okay, I'll come back to that one. (laughs) (laughs) The sweet nectar from the ocotillo flowering, the fruit from the barrel cactus, prickly pear, that's what it is. Oh, okay. Prickly pear fruit, even the prickly pear pads uh, are definitely edible. And for medicinal uses, there's the creosote that is usually boiled into like a tea which is really helpful for a lot of different things, stomach ache, body ache, things like that. There's this brittle bush that kind of has like yellow sap that comes out of its stem. And when you chew on it, it actually has the consistency and the taste of gum. So I'm assuming that maybe could have been used as like a gum, but my mom is actually the one that introduced me to that plant and told me about it and I tried it and it it really was. And I was surprised that it even had the consistency of gum too. And does it taste good? It does. It does. <laughs> <laughs> Do people still use it, all of these things that you talked about? Do people still use them today? Or this is traditionally and, and people don't really use it anymore, eat these things or use them for medicine? Not so much anymore, unfortunately. Okay. Of course, the elders are always encouraging the younger generation, my generation, to utilize certain plants for food and for medicine. But unfortunately, it's something that hasn't transferred over into the new generation. Right. Yeah. So I think advocating strongly for, for that is, just really what needs to happen, I think. And what about entertainment? You also mentioned entertainment. So traditional games, one traditional game, and it's just for the women. It's a women's game. It's called Toka. 
and it's pretty much similar to hockey. The sticks that they use to hit the wooden puck, I guess you would call it, come from the mesquite trees. And that definitely was always, even today, it's come back within the past years and it is super popular today. It's, you know, competitive. A lot of people go around to different villages on the tribal lands and compete with other villages. Mm-hmm. And the prizes usually are a basket, a pottery, a beautiful pottery, things like that. That Those are the trophies that are given out here. Or if it's just for fun, they will do trading. Um, people with different bring trading items. And if your team wins, um, or gets a certain place, they can go to a table and just kind of pick out what they like. But every team, because if it's a trading kind of game, every team would have to bring something to trade. So that's definitely a game that happened in back in the days, but it's something that has definitely come back. is very popular and thriving right now, which I'm really happy for. And I've had a game that I play as well. So I really, really enjoyed it and And then, of course, you have the men's game where the men just on foot have like this really round rock is shaped very round like a ball. And what they do is they they actually with their bare feet, they'll put their feet kind of picking up the ball and kicking it and flinging it in the air as far as they could. And then just running, running until they pick it up again, fling it in the air till they get to the end or crossing the line or whatever boundary it is they've set. And there could be four, there could be five men, and they're all running in a, in a, in a row. And whoever gets to the end first, of course, is the winner. Games like that have definitely are coming back, which I'm really super happy. Another traditional game uh, or entertainment is it's an older woman's game. So older, only you have to be maybe like 50 years and up. And it's called the Ha'a game, which is women that carry these potteries on their head. And it's kind of the same thing, like a relay. They're running to one end and back. And whoever gets there without dropping the pottery off their head wins, of course. But again, it's just for an older generation. And then, of course, you have the song and the dances. And every song and every dance means something different. We're all either singing for a, a different season or we're singing for mountains, things like that. And I think really song and dance, because we're an oral tradition tribe, when you when you go back and you start to learn the meanings of some of these songs, that it, it tells of your own history and it tells where Don Autumn have traveled and been to because every... Almost every mountain, whether it's Mount Lemmon or the Catalinas or the Rincon Mountains, or even here in the Tucson District, Tucson Mountain District, there's a song for these mountains. So for me, I'm even learning a lot. And it's just been really amazing to know that through tradition, this is how we're being told by it, through song and dance, really. And storytelling. Storytelling is still it's another thing that is coming back and I have seen younger people engage in the storytelling, learning about their legends, learning about reasons to why certain things. And I just want to share really quickly that, you know, in one of the stories with the the dispersal of, you know, people ask, why are there so many saguaros all over the place? They're everywhere. It's so dense. It's a cactus forest and things like that. And one of the traditional stories is that I think it was coyote and the buzzard had a mission in the story, right? So they were going somewhere and they needed to do something with the buzzard had a 
a bag of saguaro seeds. And in the story, the coyote is kind of like a trickster. That's kind of what he is in most of our stories is to be a trickster. But anyways, they're going on their mission and coyote being who he is, playful and whatever, he kept trying to get the bag of squirrel seeds from Buzzard. And he kept saying, no, 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 we need to take these somewhere. We need to do something. We were given a mission. We need to stick to that. And then, of course, Coyote eventually gets a hold of the bag and he's playfully, you know, just throwing these seeds everywhere, here and there, here and there. And that's how the Saguaros have become so closely populated. It's just kind of random little fun stories like that. Especially for children, you kind of give them a different perspective or an idea of how something came to be today. Right, right. That's fun. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you want visitors, visitors who are not Native American, to know and understand about Native peoples who came before and who are still there? I think just understanding that we are still here. As indigenous people, we're not completely gone. We're descendants of the prehistoric people that once dwelled in those areas. And just acknowledging really the people that were there and are still here and that these are spaces, shared spaces, um, not only for the enjoyment of visitors from all over the world, but also understanding the spiritual part of why certain areas would be so significant or so important to a specific group of people, especially the ones that have such strong, deep ties to a, a land. It means so much. There, whether you know, could be an origin to something within their own culture. So just acknowledging, but also recognizing that these areas belong to a group of people that have either moved away from those places or spaces. Some are still willing to come back to these areas that are so important to them. And everyone has their reasons to carrying on tradition. Everybody has traditions, you know, and sometimes it is very, very important to want to carry those on and not lose them, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's just the number one thing, uh, being an Indigenous person. And one thing when I did come here, giving my thoughts and opinions and ideas to how they should approach certain programs. but And that was one of the main things. They have this program. It's a fourth grade program. It's called Whole Come Life. And they're talking all about the prehistoric people. And then that's that. And when I shadowed the program, I uh, kind of suggested and recommended to my supervisor that maybe even acknowledging at the end of the program that the descendants of the prehistoric people are still here today. So one question when I would lead that program, at the end of the program, I'd always ask the group, and these are little fourth graders, you know, I'm asking them, so are there still Native people in this area? We've talked all about that. You've lived the life of a Holcomb. Are there still Natives in this area? And pretty much 90% of the time, I would get no. So you can only imagine how that makes me feel as a Native person. Right. So I just felt like, okay, well, if this is what they're thinking, then something does need to change in the type of programming. And that has changed, and I'm really happy. So even knowing that these younger people, these younger generations are growing up thinking and believing that we are no longer in these areas or we no longer exist. Well, number one thing is just acknowledging and recognizing that we are still here. 
and that we enjoy those places and spaces just as much as anyone else. Right. That will be my final, my last. <laughs> the last word, except that I have one more question. Sure. So we ask this of all of our guests. We always ask, is there a moment, and maybe this was it for you, but perhaps there's something else where it just stopped you in your tracks or made you think how special this place is. And for you, this you're coming from a different place since this place has been so special to you because of your ancestors. Is there something, a story, a moment to share that really resonates with you on how special this place is to you? I think one thing that I've learned, and this isn't just recognizing from younger teaching tribal youth, but pretty much all youth who come on their field trips here, they don't always get the opportunity to come out and experience the the desert environment that like I did as a child. You know, I grew up in a very in a rural area. I grew up in the desert. I played out here. This was my playground. But for some of these kids, this is their first time touching an ocotillo or smelling a creosote up front and seeing their amazement seeing how their reaction is, it's really mind-blowing still, but that I'm a part of that experience with them. That's what really, for me, you know, I really love my job because of that reason. You're giving them new experiences, really, and teaching them some awesome science. And that this is probably something they'll talk about when they get home, and maybe this will be something they'll always remember as well. And it's those moments like that that really, really touch me, that really, really capture the essence and simplicity of life and the environment. And that all it took was this one field trip for this kid to experience something completely different and new because they're coming from the city. So to be a part of those moments with them and to see it is pretty amazing. That's great. And you're you're building stewards of the land. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I'm speaking with Tina Andrew, Ancestral Ranger at Saguaro National Park. And Tina, can you just tell us before we end your podcast for anyone who wants to listen? It's called Cultivating Indigenous Voices. Can you just tell us a little bit about that and where people can find it? Yeah, definitely. I'd be happy to do a plug. I've been a podcaster for about two years now. You can find it at kxci.org and you can see on the page there, the website, you'll see podcast and of course just go to there and that's where you'll find it. And it's really just to bringing into a broader audience on a bigger platform to learn about their local indigenous populations or communities here in the Tucson area. Hear about what natives are doing in Tucson, what programs are available, what events are happening, how native people are contributing to Tucson. So that's pretty much what the podcast is about, is cultivating those voices, those indigenous voices for folks to recognize and learn. Again, it's all about acknowledging and recognizing whose ancestral lands you're on. You know what I mean? And sharing those stories, there's just a lot of people here that are doing some really awesome things. And I, you know, willing to share some of those stories and how it is being included here in the Tucson area, whether they're a whole group of people voicing or making things happen or whether it's one person making things happen on behalf of the indigenous community. Because I think that that's always something that is needing fulfillment 
is having that perspective told. So that's pretty much the gist of the podcast. Great. And a great platform to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been really fun speaking with you. And um, I look forward to listening to your podcast. I've already listened to many episodes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you very much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And thank you for sharing your stories. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. Send us your stories, tips, or comments to hello at everybodysnps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybodysnps.com. Subscribe for free to Everybody's National Parks on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, become a patron. Just click on support our show on our homepage, everybodysnationalparks.com. We also appreciate if you write a review, give us a five-star rating, and tell your friends. This helps more people find us. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag Everybody's National Parks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.